well, I want you to celebrate with me every single step that uh, all of the people on the stage here took. Um, when you're on a journey, every step matters, no matter how small. Let me find my words this morning. I promise it's going to be okay. Uh, every step you take, no matter how big or how large, matters. And so everyone on this stage took a step forward in serving. And so thanks for uh, listening to their, their report of their trips for the last, uh, this, over the course of this summer. Uh, they've made a difference, and so you, you'll have the opportunity to, to do the same this year, and I, I hope that you will. I want to invite you to stand with me. We've been uh, in a series all summer on the Ten Commandments, and we're coming to the end of that. We're looking at the Ninth Commandment today, and uh, I'll be reading it aloud. We stand together out of reverence for God's Word, and, and the Scripture will be on the screen so you can follow along as well. Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. And then would you read what we're going to look at here together, verse 16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And then I'll continue. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Well, um, the ninth commandment is about integrity. Can you touch your neighbor? Uh, just poke them. Um, they need to be woken up just a little bit. Uh, poke them and just say, uh, I'm here for you and you're here for me. Uh, the ninth commandment is about integrity and um, it, it's only, very honestly, it's, it's only integrity that will create for you and I a world of honesty. And this is a commandment, not a suggestion, a commandment given to us as human beings, commending honesty as the bedrock for our shared existence. So we're going to talk about integrity this morning. Now, when I think about integrity, I, 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 here's where my mind goes. I, I immediately start to realize that integrity is maybe not what it used to be, or at least the way we think about it. Uh, there's certainly the sense that integrity, uh, if someone you know, lacks integrity, we think you know, there's a break between that person's words and between the actions of that person. That's always a part of integrity, but I, I think there's a deeper level that this is happening on in our culture. Uh, when I was growing up um, in our church in Omaha, Nebraska, I went just as part of our vacation. I took a little side trip. It was just for me. I went by myself and drove up to Omaha, Nebraska, where I grew up as an elementary school kid. My dad pastored a church there and and so I, it hadn't been back in just years, and I drove. I spent about eight hours. It was kind of a spiritual pilgrimage for me. I didn't quite expect it to be that, but that's what it turned out to be. And I drove through all these places and had just all these flood of memories and people and situations. And, and I remembered a guy. I'm just going to call him, uh, I'm going to call him Fred. I, I loved uh, Fred's family, his kids. Um, they lived on a kind of quasi-ranch, and we were always welcome at their house, and Every year there was this gigantic ping pong tournament, and I realized that's where I began to love ping pong, for those of you who love ping pong. And uh, I, just, I just loved everything about their entire family. I, I remember one time when we were, uh, I was maybe 
11 years old, maybe 12, something like that. Uh, Fred and his wife took my sister and I out. They must have made some arrangement with their parents. And, and they, took, uh, they took my sister and I out. We sat down at Pizza Hut. I, I mean, I know this is the home of Pizza Hut, but this was like when Pizza Hut was Pizza the Hut. You know, it, it was like you could sit down and you had the red plastic cups. Does anybody remember this? Like back when it was the way it was supposed to be. And so we sat down there in the booths at Pizza Hut. And, um, and I remember he just kind of... His wife talked to my sister, and he talked to me, and he talked to me about being a man, and he talked to me about being a man of God, and he talked to me, to me about uh, uh, someday marrying someone and, and honoring them and loving them. And I just had such respect for him. I, I just still remember absorbing the words that he said to me and thinking, oh, yeah, if I will do what he says, then I could be the kind of person that he is. We moved away, and uh, eventually I you know, went to college, and, and um, I, I met, when I went to college at Mid-America at Nazarene University, I, I met the daughter of the pastor that had come to be the pastor of that church, and she told me, she said, yeah, my, my parents are breaking up, when we made this connection about Omaha, and I said, what? I said, she said, yeah, my mom cheated on my dad, and then she named him with Fred. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to tell you what it did to my soul. I went, what? Huh? You mean it was all a lie? That's, that's always going to be with us, that sense of integrity that you want to be the same person and continue. I'm, I'm going to talk to you, though, about a level that I think it's existing at in our culture that's going to keep us from being a people of honesty, and, and I mean all, something altogether different is happening about it. Think with me for a second about that word, you know, integrity. It comes from the word integer. You know, it's a mathematical word that refers to a number that is, that is whole in and of itself. It's not divisible. You know, one and three and seven and 11. You can't divide it. Some of you are doing the math in your head, I know. You, you can't divide it by another number. It's, it's whole in and of itself. It's the same number no matter what happens. It's a, it's a reference to when we say someone is a person of integrity, that they're whole. What we mean by that is all the parts of that person, they line up. So a person of integrity, the, 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 the feelings that you have and the motivations that you have and the, the bodily sensations that you have and the desires that you have and the hopes that you have, they're not disjointed and moving in different directions. A person of integrity finds a way to bring all of those things in line and point them all in the same direction so that you, so that you, have, you have a sense of wholeness. And when you meet someone that's like that, you know. And our word for it, our right word for it, is we go, that's a person of integrity. They're a whole person, both in a moral sense and in a complete emotional, psychological sense. I mean, they're just a complete person. They're whole. If you were to go and, and look in the Scriptures for kind of an ode to integrity, you might go to Psalm chapter 15 that paints this picture of an integrous person who's whole. And here's one of the things, I'm going to put it on the screen for you in, in, in Psalm 15, verse 4. A, a person who's like that, everything lines up, they keep an oath even when it hurts. Have you ever said something and then you regret promising what you just said and you think, oh no, I have to keep my word? <laughs> if you've ever had that wrestle, you're a person of integrity because you want to be, you want to line it all up. 
A person of integrity does that. And, and the gospel of Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' good news, what the, the gospel does in people, that's why I love the gospel and I love Jesus and you need Jesus in your life, is what Jesus does is creates out of broken people, whole people. That's, that's the whole thing. But this commandment here is warning us against the opposite of integrity and it talks about being false. Now, if you were here last week, you know we talked about this, uh, this principle of interpreting the scriptures called the principle of first mention, meaning when you don't know what a word means, you go find well, in the scriptures where that word is used for the first time and you let the context of that help you uh, interpret what you're reading. And so um, this word false is the Hebrew word. It's in your notes if you have got the notes. Uh, the Hebrew word saker. Can you just say that? Saker. And, and here's the context. The context is from actually earlier in the book of Exodus, which is the story of Moses and um, God sending Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And there's this interchange where Moses goes to uh, the Pharaoh and he says, hey, you know, let my people go. Um, and, and the Pharaoh responds back, and it's, I'll put it on the screen for you. So that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. Don't supply the people with straw and brick and require them to make the same amount of bricks. I mean, he, he doubles down. And he says, hey, do even more. And then verse 9, make the work harder for the people so they keep working and pay no attention to, and, and it's translated there, lies, but it's the word sucker. They don't, they don't pay attention to lies. So here's the context. The situation of the people of God is itself a lie. If you're enslaving people, that's a, that's a, that's a false situation, Right? Itself, it's a lie, and then Pharaoh lies about the lie. So, so the people of God are in a false situation, and Pharaoh lies to them about their situation by telling them they are believing lies. So the oppressor is telling the oppressed, hey, stop believing all the lies. I, I, have you ever had anybody do this to you? Have you ever had, we, we talk about this like, you know, with, it's kind of a popular subject, we talk about someone who's an abuser or a narcissist, and, and, and they gaslight you. You know, they tell you one thing, and then they've created the situation, and then they lie to you about the situation. Have you ever been in a situation? It's, I mean, you think you're losing your mind. You're like, what is happening right now? I, I, what, huh? And, and they blame it on you, and they tell you that it's your problem, so they say it's a lie while they're lying to you. That's what's happening in this text in Exodus chapter 5. That's the context of that word. Sakir, it's, it's, it's something that's doubly false. Now, here's what I want to suggest to you about where we are as a society and why we're struggling with this whole idea of integrity. Uh, because we're in a place and in a moment where the world that we live in is doubly false. And we're, we're, we're in a moment where we have splintered people living in what some people have called a post-truth world. And we just don't know which way to go. And I, I think it's undermining our ability to live with integrity. I, and not, maybe not for the reasons that you think. I mean, we're going to always struggle with the thing that, that, that Fred struggled with. That's always going to be with us as a part of integrity. I'm, I'm saying that I think something new has happened on the scene. And if we're going to treat the disease, then we have to be able to name it. So could I just, just for a second, I want to name five things that are happening in the context of our world um, that I think are keeping us from being people of integrity. Here's, here's the, here they are. Um, right now, we're, we're in a moment where we are focused, culturally speaking, more on what we feel 
than on any real sense of understanding. What do, what do I mean by that? Uh, I've been reading this book. I, um, I, I love to read, and I, I love to read kind of, you know, the, the sources. And I've heard this, this book, particular book, quoted by all these different people, and I thought, I need to read that sometime. And so this summer, I, I bought this book. It's called uh, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. It was written in the 60s by this kind of intellectual person. And, and basically, he's recounting... Um, how we got to the world that we have. And, and I, I promise you, I, I don't recommend the book because it's super heady unless you're into that kind of a thing. Uh, I don't re- it's just kind of hard to wade through. But here's, here's, the, here's the crux of what he says. He's just observing, I, I, as far as I can tell from reading it, not a person of faith. He says, you know, for m- most of human history, the way we've figured out how we get meaning and what's right and what's wrong is we've turned to theology. We've turned to the Bible We've turned to philosophy. And he said, something new has happened. And he said, now, instead of turning to to theology and to philosophy, he says, now what we've done is we've turned to psychology. And here's what he's trying to say. He says, we've moved from basing uh, meaning and purpose and right and wrong outside of ourselves, and now we have located that inside of ourselves. Now, I promise, I've read, underlined so many sentences because I'm thinking, man, he could have written this about today. Today, oh my word. So here we're in this moment where it's just, it's all about what I feel and what I feel is we think right now is the most important thing about us. I was listening to someone and I, I, I had to listen to it twice because I thought this person is not saying what they're saying. And it was this, uh, this um, educated person, and I'm, I'm all for education, smart, intelligent. I'm, I'm listening to them talk, and they're talking about the state of marriage. And they said, you know, um, it used to be that we would make these commitments and we would stay married to someone. But he said, but now, you know, things have changed. And, and we just, you know, it, we, we recognize that we're in a moment where sometimes you might love somebody, and, and then sometimes that feeling of love dissipates and you need to make a change for yourself. I thought, what? what? Huh? And I, I replayed it because I thought, this person cannot be serious. They're saying we should base a lifelong commitment that's been the bedrock of society for thousands of years and we should just base it on a feeling? Are you kidding me? And we're in a moment where if you judge what anybody feels, someone looks at you and they say, I mean, who are you to judge? if what I'm feeling is right or not. I, 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 here's why I, I just, it's, it's totally befuddling to me. It's, do we not see how fickle our feelings are? are? Are you aware of how fickle your feelings are? I, I think, this is my assessment, take it for what it's worth. I think that we're basically about in seventh grade as a society. My apologies to all the seventh graders in the room. <laughs> but you know when you're in seventh grade? Like, you don't know anything other than what you feel because your emotions are coming at you hot and heavy, <laughs> right? And you think it is your job to love your friend by affirming what they feel. Now, there's some beauty in that. But what a terrible way to build a society. <laughs> what a terrible way to build a life. And, and we think that the only way I can love a person is to affirm what they are feeling in the moment. Now, now, hear me. What you feel matters. I'm not trying to tell you that what you feel doesn't matter. I'm not trying to say that. I, I just did a little experiment this week, and I just thought I'm going to kind of chronicle my emotions for a day and see all the th- different things that I felt in a single day. And in one day, one day, one day, 
case you think I got it all together. I, I felt great. I felt elated. I was excited. Um, and then not long after that, I felt terrible. I felt awful. Uh, I, I felt afraid. I felt hopeful. Um, I, I, I felt afraid. I, I, I felt anxious. Now, by the way we're judging things as a society, which of those emotions should I latch onto and say, this emotion is the permanent emotion I should base all of my life on? You, I'm, I'm trying to make the point. Why would you do that? I just think, this is the way I think about emotions, if this is helpful to you. I think emotions are great for feedback. They're terrible as a rudder. So we're, we're focused on feeling more than understanding. And then we're trying to honor every opinion as equally valid. Now, that's noble on its face because it's, it actually is ennobling to another person to listen, listen to them and to validate what they feel. I mean, that, that, that actually is. But what we've done is we've confused opinion with dignity. You can give me dignity by listening to me while not agreeing with my opinion and recognizing my opinion is not that great. But, but, but we've confused that. There, there's a famous, again, another famous book I like, I like to read a lot. There's a guy by the name of Robert um, um, Habits of the Heart, Robert Bell. He, so he, he wrote this book. He did this massive study of America, and he's trying to understand. It's a, a very famous book. And um, he is exploring the habits, the, it's the habits of the heart, the, what's going on inside of us as Americans. And in the course of his study um, and research and talking to people, he met this woman, and her name was Sheila. And he was asking her all the questions he asked everybody, you know, about meaning and purpose and, and theology and spirituality and God. And, and, and she said, oh, you know what? I, um, I have created my own religion. He said, oh, yeah, okay, tell me about that. She said, well, I worship me. And I worship at the church of Sheilaism. In other words, she just baptized her opinions as uh, like a religion, right? A lot of thinkers have been talking about this and, and saying this is maybe not helpful, and they've given it a label, and they've said we're in what, what they call project self. Like maybe it's not so helpful. So we're trying to honor every opinion is equally valid. And then here's, we've collectively decided that the world will get better with technology. Now, listen. To some degree, that's actually true. Like, if, if there is a robot that can mow my lawn, and I don't have to motivate my teenagers to mow my lawn, sign me up. Please, someone give me that for Christmas. I would love it. I'm not going to buy it myself. So, if, if that could be a thing, right? You, that, that will improve life. I mean, you know, you have a washing machine. You, might, you have a dishwasher. You have a refrigerator. Those are all, that's all technology. It's improved life in some measurable ways. But that's not what we actually mean. I don't, I don't think when we say that, um, and when people say that, I don't think what they mean is, you know, we're just going to improve the quality of life. I think what we mean is, we mean that technology will make us better people. It will make us more human. It will ennoble us in some way and make us truer to the human experience. I'm not so certain that's the case. Just pay attention to social media. Those of you that are on social media, just pay attention to all these people who, and I, I, I jump on social media and I look at it, and, and I think all these people who are influencers and the pressure they are under to come up with content because the algorithm rewards content and they have to come up with content. And then just follow somebody for long enough and they'll say, hey, I, I had to get off social media and they'll always give the same reason for my mental health. Like, we think it's going to improve us, and it's actually 
consuming us. Uh, the, the next thing is I, we've, we've switched our, we've switched what we think is the default for deciding what's right and what's wrong. There's this lady, her name's Nancy Piercy. She's uh, an intellectual. And she says there's always been uh, two kind of levels at which we as human beings have tried to sort out the world. And she said the first level that it's just always been the case is we've, um, we've worked on the level of facts and the level of biology and the level of things that are objectively true. Like, okay, the sky is blue. Now we can argue about why it's blue or how it's blue, but we can all agree that, that like, that's, the, that's the thing. It's objectively true outside of me. And she said, and the other level is the, the level of feelings and values. And she's not saying that, that um, one is better than the other, but she says if you're going to start with understanding what works, you ought to start with the, with the reality of what's true and what's factual and biological. And, and what we have done is we've, she says, we've, we've flipped it. And for most of human history, we've said, okay, let's, is it true? I mean, does it line up with biology? Uh, is, it, uh, uh, is it accurate? Is it actually factual? She said, we've flipped that now, and we're, it's, it's kind of the same thing. We now are basing everything on, on feelings and on values, and we've set aside the first for the second. I'll give you two examples. This should show you how pervasive it is, and it's across the board. doesn't matter what you think. Uh, not long ago in a governmental administration, uh, someone got on national television, and someone was asking them the question about, about what, was, what had happened, and this person representing this administration said, well, you know, we believe there are alternative facts. Both? What? Alternative facts? I didn't know that was a thing. Um, psalm 8, you, this, this, that's one side, right? <laughs> psalm 8, it's a beautiful psalm, and in, in the psalm, it says this wonderful phrase, you read Psalm 8, it says, what is, what is man that you are mindful of him? And we're in a day when we're not really even sure what a man or a woman is, right? We're like, is that even a what? What is that? I don't know. On both, both ends of that spectrum, what we've, what, we've, what we've heightened and what we've raised are feelings and values, not facts and biology and objective truths. And we're in a mess. And this is the last one, is we've decided that the goal of everything is personal authenticity. Now, listen. Again, I, I, on the face of it, I applaud that. Christians, uh, we, we ought to be the realest, most authentic, most genuine people because we know what a mess we are. We know that we're sinners. We know that without the grace of God, we wouldn't be where we are. We have nothing to hide as a result. When you understand grace, it just makes you so free. And it's like, I can be vulnerable about where I was because we're all that way. We, the Bible says we're sinners, and I was one of them. So we ought to be incredibly authentic people. But what we've done as a society is we've decided that personal authenticity is the goal and that it overwhelms every other goal. And so we have language where we talk about that as a culture and we say, you know, I was, you know I, it's, it's my truth. Or I was, I was being true to my truth. Now, if, if that means I'm being true to my experience of life, okay, well, that, yeah, Absolutely. Your experience is different than my experience, of course. Yeah, we need to figure that out. But if that means that there are competing realities and my experience of the world through my feelings is just as valid as your experience of the world through your feelings, then I don't know how that works. I, I, I'm a big fan. Again, I read a lot. Uh, Leslie Newbegin, if you know who Leslie Newbegin was. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary. He was, a, he was British. He went to India for decades. He was a missionary there, very effective for the gospel of Jesus in India. And, and he came back home to England 
And he realized that the world had changed. And it had shifted. And he's writing in the 50s and 60s and the 70s. And, and um, just a very profound thinker as well as a deeply devoted to Jesus and to his mission. And this is, uh, I'm going to put a quote from him on the screen. This is what he says. I, w- I want to reject the idea. Now, this is a very thoughtful person. I want to reject the idea that the West is becoming a, sec- a secular society without God. You'll hear people talk about that, like we're getting rid of religion. Here's what it's become, rather, a pagan society filled with idols and false gods. I'm like, yeah, but I think that's pretty right. We've reanimated the world, and I'm kind of my own God. And here's what I want to say to you about integrity, is that now the idea of a person is up for grabs, so that to be whole or to be one or the same seems almost impossible. And how can you be complete when you don't really know who you are? How in the world do you even get there? And I'm just trying to show you that this just doesn't work. And what's happening is it's like a sinkhole is forming. You know what happens with a sinkhole is, is it underneath the surface. It looks fine on the surface, but underneath the surface, everything that supports what's on the surface is being eroded until a final moment happens and it gives way and there's a giant hole. And I just want to suggest that's what's happening. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, the Ten Commandments, what, what the Ten Commandments do is they critique our lack They've done this for centuries now because that's why God, one of the reasons God gave them to us. And while at the same time critiquing our lack gives us a path to what we need, I'm for that. So let's spend just a couple of minutes here, uh, just in the last few minutes we've got here together, looking at this, this, path, this, uh, this command. I'm going to give you this really quickly. Um, false witness. Do not bear a false witness. Now, the first mention of the word witness there, the first in the, the scriptures, is what we looked at last week. is the story of Jacob and Laban and his father-in-law, and Jacob is a trickster. And, and in Genesis chapter 31, verse 44, they finally come to some sense of agreement. You can read the story for yourself. And um, in, verse, uh, in verse 44, uh, Laban says to Jacob, he says, come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness. And, and the word is ed in Hebrew, uh, as a witness between us. And then just a few verses later, they take a pile of stones and they put this pile of stones on the, on the earth together and they say, now, when you and I walk past this pile of stones we've put here, this thing outside of ourselves, then let us remember the witness that we have had, the covenant that we have made together. Now, again, you've got to use the story as a filter to understand the meaning of the word. So here's, here's, here's what I'm trying to say to you about the, ten command, the, the, the ninth commandment here. Where's the standard? Even in this story, if you know this story, two tricksters, two liars, two manipulative people, even for people who are tricksters and thieves and liars, the, the, the standard is not inside of them. It is outside of them. Now, they have to take and own that, own that inside themselves, but it always starts outside of me. So that means the standard for you and I is not inside of us. We have to own it at some point. It's outside of us. And so there's this command, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't sacare ed. Don't, don't, don't doubly falsify your neighbor. Don't maliciously hurt them with your speech. A, a rabbi said it this way. He says this when you're using false witness. He says he calls it third speech or malicious, malicious speech. This is what he says. I'm going to read it to you. Third speech, malicious speech about a third party kills three people. 
It kills the one who speaks the malicious speech. So if you bear false witness, you, you hurt yourself. And the one who accepts the malicious, malicious speech when he hears it. And the one about whom the malicious speech is said. Like you mess everybody up when you bear false witness against somebody. Now let me very quickly just go through the book of Proverbs. What you become when you, when you suck hair, Ed, when you give false witness. Proverbs chapter 6, you become a liar and your reputation becomes nothing. Um, six things the Lord hates, seven that are testable to him. There, verse 19, a false witness, that's that same word, who pours out lies. You become not trustable. I don't know if you want that. Um, you become a corrupt witness and you mock at justice. So in other words, you steal justice from people. You're, the, you're, you're essentially a thief. Um, then uh, Proverbs 24, don't testify against your neighbor without cause. You, would you use your lips to mislead? Like it's, it's like you're, you become the kind of person that when you talk, everyone knows you're just pouring out lies. Do you, do you remember back in the day when there was Tupperware? Do you remember Tupperware? And, and I think every home in America had this tan pitcher with this white lid and you'd had to press the thing. Does anybody remember that? Okay, dating myself a bit here. Some of you are like, I still have that in my fridge. I've got Kool-Aid in it. I'm going to go home and looking forward to the tea if you'll stop talking. Right? So you become a picture full of lies. That's the picture. Uh, Proverbs 25, 18, like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is the one who gives false testimony against your neighbor. You become somebody who beats people. You're an abuser of shared humanity. You become basically a character assassin. And character assassination in any of its forms constitutes false witness. Okay, what do we do with this? I just, again, this is why I'm a Christian. This is why I love Jesus. It's because um, we can always wrestle with what we're not. We need somebody to help us with what we need to become. But we need somebody who loves us beyond what we are currently are. That's why I think it's best for you to become a Christian, be a follower of Jesus, because Jesus loves you for what he can make out of you, not what you were. What are, what are you and I in need of? Well, you and I are always in need of transformation. Now, I don't know who you got in your world that is in the business of transforming you, of taking your emotions and your thoughts and your experiences and your desires and your longings and your hurts and your hang-ups and, and melding all of that together into something and making out of all of that that you don't know how to put together in a cohesive way, making out of that a whole person. I don't know who you got. I don't, I don't know anybody other than Jesus that does that, that's in that business, that takes the whole broken parts of you into himself and transform them. Think, think about it like this, right? You are the caterpillar. You're like barely creeping along. And then you know how it works with the caterpillar? The caterpillar goes inside of this chrysalis and somehow in that, in that chrysalis, chrysalis, however you say that word, someone correct me after the service. In that, there, there's this moment that, that this, this whole other creature breaks out. And it's transformed. It's no longer something that just barely moves along the ground and can get squashed. It's something that can fly. That's you. With Jesus in your life. So here's how the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies. That's, that's everything you've experienced. That's everything you feel. That's everything you're going through. That's the things that have been traumatic to you and good to you. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform, don't be a conformist to the pattern of this world. But there's the word, say it with me, would you? 
Be transformed. Can you say that? Just say the word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, how do you do this? How does Jesus do this in the human heart? I'll tell you how Jesus does this in the human heart. Jesus does this by forgiveness. You will learn what you need to know about responding to life's difficulties by looking at the cross of Jesus because if you read the scene of the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus, what you discover in the scene is there are um, the, the religious leaders, they pay some people basically, coerce some people basically to be sacer eds, to be false witnesses and tell lies. And those false witnesses put Jesus on the cross But do you know what Jesus says on the cross about all the people who did all the things that were completely wrong and misguided? The false witnesses. Do you know the words that he utters? What does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he says to his disciples, he says, now I'm going to make a new, I'm going to make a new ed, a new new witness, a new covenant with you, and it's going to be a different covenant. That's what Jesus can do in your life. And so you can become the kind of person like Jesus says in John chapter 7. He says, let anyone who is thirsty, if you'd come up, Sean, would you? Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. You and I have an invitation, a standing invitation into a transforming friendship with Jesus whereby Jesus takes the broken parts of us takes all the the whole bit of that and forms us into a whole person that we could never become on our own. So I I want you to confess. I don't don't know your condition. I don't know your situation. I don't know if I offended you today. I don't know what you're going through. I just know we're all in the same need of transformation. And it starts with a simple confession about where I am. There's um, some language the church has used for many, many centuries now about confession. And I want us to say it together. Would you stand with me? We're going to put this on the screen. Oh, whoop, wrong one, guys. Wrong one, guys. Do you have the confession there? There we go. Would you say this with me? If you're in the place where you're like, I need transformation, I hope that's you. Would you say these words uh, with me? We'll pray them together. Ready? Here we go. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Lord, I pray for my friend today who knows they, uh, they have been engaging in false witness. Lord, I, I'm sure everybody in this room could have some story about some, how someone has done that to them. So we've all been victims at, at a level. Some of us, though, we're wrestling with the fact that we've been the, the person doing the perpetrating. We're the, we're the one who did it. Thank you, Jesus, that you're never overwhelmed by how broken we are. Our sin is nothing for you. Where, where sin increases, we hear the words of Paul, where, where sin increases, your grace more than increases. It, it, it superabounds where sin abounds. Your grace superabounds. So I pray for my friend that they would know 
that uh, there's a place for them at the table, that forgiveness is for them, that you're the one who can transform them. Lord, we don't know what to do exactly about this moment in our culture where we're so confused. We just know we want to follow you. We just know you're the one that transforms people. Keep us from being self-righteous about this. Help us to humbly cling to you as your people. Ask for your help and admit that we're on the journey too and that you're, you're in the middle of transforming us, God. Let us be those kinds of people. People who express a new kind of covenant, a new way of being human in the world together that you've ordained for us, Jesus, by your blood shed for us on the cross and by your resurrection from the dead, the power that's available to us today to live a different life. We receive that. We pray this in your name and all God's people said.